Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from A Book for the Hammock, published in 1887. This story was written by William Clark Russell. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. There were many lovely reviews on iTunes from listeners this week. Thank you to DSJ for your lovely review on iTunes US. Thank you also to Subnauta for your lovely review on iTunes US. And from Spain iTunes... I thank Aquina Servador for your lovely review also. Thank you to Instagram user StowFullbock for your lovely comments. I'm glad you're getting the rest that you need. On Twitter, I would like to thank Tishan73 for your lovely comments. It seems your dog is also benefiting from the podcast. And finally... Thank you to an anonymous user for being the first reviewer on Audible. Hopefully you're hearing this, you know who you are, and I'm appreciative of your comments. If I've missed any of your comments or messages, please send me a message through the website so I can thank you personally. If you find the podcast beneficial, please remember to subscribe and share with a friend who may need a good night's rest. If you would like, you can say hello at boytosleep.com. If the podcast is something that you use as a regular tool to help you get to sleep, you may wish to support the podcast at boytosleep.com. It is the highest compliment, and it also allows me to bring out more episodes for you and those who need them. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. A Book for the Hammock Preface The reader will please regard these papers as the mere whiskings of a petrel's pinions, skimmering the blue surge of deep waters. The utmost hope of the author goes no further than that here and there, something that may be found to pleasantly lighten the tedium of a sleepless half-hour in the bunk or hammock, or relieve the dullness of a spell of quarter-deck lounging. The articles are reprinted from the Daily Telegraph, the Gentleman's Magazine, the Contemporary Review, 
and Longman's magazine. It would have been troublesome to disturb the original text, and some new matter, therefore, has been included in the form of notes. Chapter 1. A Nautical Lament I asked myself the question one day whilst standing on the bridge of one of the most handsomest and stoutest of the Union Company's steamboats, outward bound to the Cape of Good Hope, what has become of the old romance of the sea. It was a brilliant afternoon, the sunshine in the water seemed to hover there like some flashful veil of silver, paling the azure so that it showed through it in a most delicate dye of cerulean faintness. The light breeze was abeam, yet the ship made a gale of her own that stormed past my ears in a continuous shrill hooting, and the wake roared away astern like the huddle of foaming waters at the foot of a high cataract. On the confines of the airy cincture, that marked the junction of sea and sky gleamed the white pinions of a little barque. The fabric, made fairy-like by distance, shone with a most exquisite dainty distinctness in the lenses of the telescope I levelled at it. The vessel showed every cloth she had spars and booms for, and leaned very lightly from the wind and hung like a star in the sky. But our tempestuous passage of thirteen knots an hour speedily slided that effulgent elfin structure onto our quarter, where she glanced a minute or two like a wreath of mist, a shred of light vapour, and then dissolved. What has become, thought I, of the old romance of the sea? The vanished Barque and the resistless power underneath my feet, shaking to the heart the vast metal mass that it was impelling, symbolized one of the most startling realities of modern progress. In sober truth, the propeller has sent the poetry of the deep swirling astern. It is out of sight, nay, the demon of steam has possessed with its spirit the iron interior of the sailing ship, and from the eyes of the nautical occupants of that combination of ore and wire, the glory and the dream, that ocean visionary life which was the substance and the soul of the sea calling of other days, 
has faded as utterly as it has from the confined gaze of the sudorific fiends of the engine room. To know the sea, you must lie long upon its bosom, your ear must be at its heart, you must catch and interpret its inarticulate speech, you must make its moods your own, Rise to the majesty of its wrath. Taste to the very inmost reaches of your vitality. The sweetness of its reposeful humour. Bring to its astonishments the wonder of a child. And to its power and might the love and reverence of a man. Enough cries Rasselas to Imlac. Thou hast convinced me that no human being can ever be a poet. And I have convinced myself that the conditions of the sea life in these times prohibit the most ardent of imaginative sailors from the exercise of that sort of divination which is to be found in perfection in the old narratives. The vocation is too tedious, the stress of it too harassing, the despatch insisted upon too exacting, to furnish opportunity for more than the most mechanical motions of the mind. A man is hurried from port to port with railway punctuality. He is swept headlong through calms and storms, and if there come a pause it will be found perilous, and consternation takes the place of observation. Nothing new is left. The monsters of the deep have sunk into the ooze and blackness of time, and life founded, waiting for the resurrection that will not come, until civilization has run its course and man begins afresh. All seaboards are known. Nothing less than an earthquake can submit the unfamiliar in-island on coast scenery. The mermaid hugging her merman has shrunk, affrighted by the wild, fierce light of science, and by the pitiless dredging of the deep water inquirer into the dark vaults beneath her coral pavilions. Her songs are heard no more, and her comb lies broken upon the sands. Old ocean itself, soured by man's triumphant domination of its forces, by his more than Duke of Marlborough-like capacity, of riding the whirlwind and directing the storm, has silenced his teachings, sleeps or roars blindly, 
an eyeless lion and avenges its neglect and submission by forcing the nautical mind to associate with the noblest, the most romantic vocation in the world, no higher ideas than tonnage, free board, scantlings, well decks, length of stroke, number of revolutions, the managing owner, and the board of trade. The early mariner was like the growing boy whom Woodsworth signs of in it the divine ode, from which I have already quoted. But he beholds the light and whence it flows. He sees it in his joy. The youth who daily farther from the east must travel still in nature's priest and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. Were I asked to deliver my sense of the highest poetical interpretation of the deep, I should point into distant times to some new and silent ocean on whose surface, furrowed for the first time, a fabric of man's handiwork, floats some little bark with a deckload of pensive, wondering, reverential men. Yes, you would find the noblest and most glorious divination of the true spirit of the deep in the thoughts which fill the breasts of that company of quaintly apparelled souls. The very ship herself fits the revelation of the sea to those simple hearts who have heartily sailed down the gleaming slope behind the familiar horizon and penetrated the liquid fastness of the marine gods and demons. Mark the singular structure, swinging pendulum-like to the respirations of the blue and foamless swell. Her yellow sides throw a golden luster under her. Little ordinance of brass and black iron sparkle on her bulwarks and grin along her sides. Her poop and top lanthorns flash and fade with the swaying of her masts. Her pennons enrich the white sails with their dyes. And how long those banners may let us conceive from that ancient account of the Amada in which it is written. For the memory of this exploit, the foresaid Captain Bandadanus caused the banner of one of these ships to be set up in the great church of Leiden in Holland which is of so great a length that being fastened to the very roof it reached down to the ground. 
her men are children, albeit bearded, and not yet upon them have the shades of the prison house begun to close. Are we not to be pitied that all the glories which enraptured them, the wonders which held them marvelling, the terrors which sent them to their devotions, should have disappeared forever from our sight? We have still indeed the magnificence of the sunset, the splendour of the heavens by night, the Andean seas of the tempest and tenderness of the moonlighted calm. But these things are not to us as they were to them, for a magic was in them that is gone, the mystery and fear and awe begotten of intrusion into the obscure and unknown principalities of the sea-king have vanished. Our interpretation gathers nothing of those qualities which rendered theirs and romantic and lovely as a Shakespearean dream. What is our loss? What our perceptions compared with their costly endowment of marine disclosure. You see the world of old ocean was before them. They had everything to enjoy. It was a virgin realm also for them to furnish with the creations of their imagination. The flying fish, what object so familiar now, the house sparrow wins as much attention to the full in the street as does the fish from the sailor or the passenger as it sparks out from the seething yeast of the blue wave and vanishes like a little shaft of mother of pearl. But in those old times they found a wonder here and prettily declared that they quitted the sea in summer and became birds. Hear how an old voyager discourses of these biscold fowls. There is another kind of fish as big as almost as a herring, which hath wings and fleeth, and they are together in great number. These have two enemies, the one in the sea, the other in the air. In the sea the fish, which is called albocacor, as big as a salmon, follow them with great swiftness to take them. This poor fish, not being able to move or swim fast, for he hath no fins, but swim with moving of his tail, shutting his wings, lifting himself above the water, and fly not very high. The albacore, seeing that, although he has no wings, yet he giveth a great leap out of the water, 
and sometimes catcheth the fish weary of the air. It is wonderland to this man, he writes of a thing. He writes of a thing never before beheld with a curious ambition of accuracy, clearly making little doubt that in any case his story will not be credited and that therefore, since the truth is astonishing enough, he may well carefully stick to it. And the barnacle... Does the barnacle hold any poetry to us? One would as soon seek for the seed of romance in the periwinkle or the crab. Taking up the first dictionary at hand, I find barnacle described as a shellfish, commonly found on the bottom of ships, rocks and timber, but those wonderful ancient mariners made a goose of it, as may be observed in Mr. John Locke's account of his ship which arrived home, marvellously overgrown with certain shells, in which he solemnly affirms there groweth a certain slimy substance which at the length slipping out of the shell, falling in the sea, becometh those fowls which we call barnacles. We were not those high times for Jack. A barnacle, whether by seaside brim or anywhere else, is to us, alas... In this exhaustive age, a barnacle and nothing more. Or take the maelstrom, a gyration not quite so formidable as the imagination of Edgar Allan Poe would have us believe, but by report exactly one of those features of the ocean to alarm the primitive fancy with frightful ideas. Note, says Mr. Anthony Jenkinson in his voyage to Russia, 1557, that there is between the said Rost Islands and Lowfoot a whirlpool called Maelstrand, which maketh such a terrible noise that it shaketh the rings in the doors of the inhabitants' houses of the said islands ten miles off. Also, if there cometh any whale within the current of the same, they make a pitiful cry, and so on. How fine as an artistic touch should we deem this introduction of the whale by the hand of an imaginative writer. The detail to the contemporary readers of Mr. Jenkinson's yarn would make an enormous horror of that whirlpool, for what should be able to swallow Leviathan short of some such stupendous commotion as would be caused by the breaking up of the fountains of the waters of the earth?
Let it be remembered that whales were fine specimens in that age of poetry. They were big enough to gorge a squadron of men of war, aye, and to digest the vessels. We have had nothing like them since, the nearest approach to such monsters being the shark in which, on its being ripped open, there was found one full-rigged ship only, with the captain and the mate quarrelling in the cabin over the reckoning. The age of marine romance supplied the mariner with many extraordinary privileges. We cannot control the winds as those old people did. There are no longer gale-makers from whom Jack can buy a favourable blast. The very saints have deserted us since it is certain that at sea we now pray to them in vain. Observe that in fifty directions, despite our propellers, donkey engines, steam windlasses, and the like, the ancient mariner was out and away better off than we are. Did he want wind? Then he had nothing to do but apply to a fin who for a few shillings would sell to him in the shape of a knotted handkerchief, three sorts of gale, all prosperous, but one harder than another, by which he could be blown to his port without anxiety or delay. Did a whirlwind threaten him, then read in the voyage of Pyrrhid and Harris's collection how he managed. We frequently saw great whirlwinds rising at a distance, called by the seamen dragons which shatter and overturn any ship that falls in their way. When these appear, the sailors have a custom of repairing to the prow or the side that lies next to the storm and beating naked swords against one another crosswise. Purchase in his pilgrims repeats this and adds that this easy remedy of the sword hinders the storm from coming over their ship, and turneth aside. Did human skill and judgment fail him, there were the saints. Before the days of the insurance officers and political economy, writes the author of Lustanian Sketches, Merchants frequently insured their ships at the highly esteemed shrine of Mantazimbo by presenting a sum equal to the pay of captain or mate, and that too without stipulating for any equivalent should the vessel be wrecked. Was it not his custom to carry the image of his patron saint to sea with him, to pray to it, 
to make it responsible for the winds, and if it proved obstinate to force it into an obliging posture of mind and soul by flogging it, consider what a powerful marine battery of these saints he could bring to bear upon the vexed refractory ocean and the capricocious storming of winds. Saint Anthony, Saint Nicholas, whose consecrated loaves of bread quelled many a furious gale. Saint Roland, Saint Cyric, Saint Mark, Saint George, Saint Michael, Saint Benedict, Saint Clement. The list is as long as my arm, the number great enough to swell out a big ship's company. Did pirates threaten him? There was no occasion to see all clear for action. He had but to invoke St. Hilarion, who once on a time by prayer arrested the progress of a picaroon whilst chasing, and away would scuttle the black flag. Was smooth water required for safely making a port? Then no matter how high the sea ran, all that was needful was to find a pious man on board, light tapers, bring up the incense, erect a crucifix, read prayers, sprinkle the decks with holy water, and straightway the sea under the vessel's forefoot would flatten into a level lane, smooth as oil, albeit the surges on either hand continued to leap to the height of the maintop who now regards, save with mild curiosity, the corposant, the St. Elmo's fire, the dimly burning meteoric exhalation at the yardarm. It is no more to modern and current imagination that the phosphoric flashes in black into tropic waters but the ancient mariner made an omen of it, a saint, a joy to be blessed. He wrought into a beneficent symbol and endowed it with such powers of salvation as comforted him exceedingly whilst he kneeled on quivering knees in the pale illumination of that mystic marine corpse candle. Who now scratches the mast for a breeze? Who fears the dead body as a storm maker? What has become of the damnatory qualities of the cat? And who now hears the dimmest echo of combinatory power in her loudest mew? And most galling of all reflections... Into what ocean unknown to man has sailed the Flying Dutchman? And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. 
If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another story. In the meantime, I'm working hard to bring you a new episode very soon. Good night.